Hello, and welcome to the Asking for More podcast. I'm your host, Mazarine Trades. Our systems are broken and we need to ask for more, not just for ourselves, but for every woman that comes after us. If we're going to get through this time, we need to acknowledge the trauma of the last two years and realize there's no such thing as going back to business as usual. That means you need to learn to ask for more and I wanna help you do that. Why should you listen to me? Over the last 12 years, I've helped so many women ask for more in their work, ask for more from systems, and ask for more with salary negotiations. So I decided to put together this podcast and the Asking for More Mastermind. I have the lens of an extremely privileged white, cis, queer, middle-class woman living in North America. What works for me may not work for you depending on intersecting repression. If I say anything hurtful or harmful, I'm always open and willing to do better. I love helping you ask for more. It's truly my calling and I cannot wait to connect with you. Let's go. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Asking for More podcast. I'm so excited today and so honored to have uh, Ms. Tanisha Thompson speak with us today. And she's going to be speaking at the Nonprofit Career Conference in March. And I'm so excited. And Ms. Tanisha, thank you for being here. Tell me more about you. <laughs> thank you so much for inviting me. I am so excited to be here and be in conversation with you um, this evening. Um, I'm really excited about this nonprofit conference that you have coming up. Um, we have such an amazing time planned for folks and a great lineup of workshops. And I'm really happy to talk about the issues that I am most um, uh, uh, thinking of and, and working on right now. I am a nonprofit consultant, facilitator, and coach. I've been doing this work since 2012 when through the burnout and some <laughs> other things, <laughs> I realized that my talents um, would better serve the nonprofit uh, sector as a consultant rather than a staffer. I did direct services um, in nonprofits across New York City for about 10 years um, before starting my consulting firm. Uh, and so I am the owner uh, for Impact Consulting. We actually just went through rebranding um, and after many years have finally stepped into a new phase of my firm. Um, we are growing and hiring staff, uh, but we are a social impact firm that is dedicated to repairing, building, and positioning nonprofit teams for impact and growth. Um, the nonprofit sector has been around for a long time. And as a licensed social worker and someone who's calling in life, has been to help people, what I can say for sure is that our sector is broken. And I say that um, understanding and recognizing the importance that nonprofit um, institutions and, and service you know, providing agencies have played in the lives of many, 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 many millions of people around the, around the country. Um, but for all that, all that investment, all that hard work, all the goodwill and the people on the ground um, working hard to bring positive impact to people in their lives, um, we still see very serious systemic and institutional um, oppression occurring. And not just from outside the nonprofit sector, but within the nonprofit sector because of how our systems are set up, um, because of the laws on the books, because of issues related to power and control, because of who works at nonprofits and who is attracted to that sector. And so there's just so much going on. Um, and as a consultant, 
I really, you know, I spent a lot of time doing things around strategic planning early in my career and partnership development and really just kind of asking nonprofit staff to do more, like figure out how to do better and do more. And like, we know we don't have the resources, but like, let's do it. Um, and over the past few years, particularly in response to COVID, what I realized is like, you can strategically plan and do training up the wazoo. But if you have not made time to build a culture um, that respects people, respects difference, puts people first over profits, um, that really understands that diversity is an asset, um, that understands that people participating in the design of their own solutions is necessary, um, that honors the staff that works inside the nonprofit as much as they honor the community um, with whom they want to work with and for. Like, unless you build up nonprofits that have cultures that really um, um, support a healthy organizational culture that we will continue to be in these cycles of just asking and trying to find more money and more resources to serve more poor people and more people who are marginalized and disenfranchised. And so we have um, what I call an illness within our nonprofit sector, and we need to start working on it. We need to repair um, relationships, repair systems. We need to build together and we need to position ourselves to really have the type of impact that an organization wants to have in a community or with a specific group of people. And so that's what I do. I say, I help nonprofits get their shit together because right now <laughs> we have a real problem around root causes that no one's addressing the root causes of a lot of the issues that we are pouring billions of dollars into the nonprofit sector to, to do. And if we did work on those things, we could do so much more for so many more people. We can have even greater impact. And so I dedicate my days into really thinking about um, the traumatic experience that many people have who are not just the, the clients and consumers of a nonprofit, but who are the staff of nonprofits. Um, and so I'm really excited to have this conversation and have it openly in a way that gets um, nonprofits, you know, nonprofits are made for people. So that gets the people who work at nonprofits and kind of the nonprofit sector um, as a whole to really be reflective and to look at the time that we're in right now to look at all of the threats um, to people's um, life and quality of life that's happening right now, to look at the injustice and the inequities that are rampant, and to think about how we can do our work with integrity and do our work in a way that really adds value. And so that's a little bit about me and my work. I really love that you said that, uh, Denisha. And let me just take it a one step further. Let me name the systems and structures that you're alluding to that are so unequal. So every single structure in our society is built under white supremacy and nonprofits are no exception. And so we're seeing white women and white men being obstructivist when it comes to actually addressing these issues of inequity in their organizations. And I speak as a white woman, um, I've been there and our system, I mean, honestly, if I could sum up it up in one sentence, it's basically white people saying, I know better than you. And that's not, we're better than that. We are all better than that. We don't have to accept that anymore. Um, and we can actually 
step out in our organizations and say, yes, I'm for prison abolition. Yes, I am for, you know, more than just a soundbite around Black Lives Matter. I believe in putting this in the structure of our organizations. And so part of the reason that we're so traumatized by this work and part of the reason that we're so incredibly, uh, the work is just ongoing forever is because we're not addressing the structures underneath why it's so unequal. Absolutely. And I think, you know, um, I think where we are right now as a country, when you say white supremacy, so many people just shut down because there's this belief that, not even that it doesn't exist, but that it doesn't exist, it doesn't have the, the repercussions that we know it has. And along with white supremacy, the whole idea of white dominant culture and what is that and how does that show up? You know, um, I'll give you a quick example. When we say things like professionalism, well, who gets to decide the rules on what's professional at this nonprofit? Who gets to say that? Who gets to who gets to say whether or not me with these big black hoop earrings is a professional or not? Right? And the crown so, laws and all of that. Exactly, exactly. My hair is in locks. Uh, you know, like so. People will look at me and make, um, uh, uh, you know, assumptions about who I am, about my intelligence, about whether or not I deserve to be a part of a conversation, about whether or not I can be trusted, about whether or not. Um, I am a credible messenger when I'm speaking to the needs or or what I'm seeing in my to the people in my community, right? And so I do think that some and and that yes is white people, but it oftentimes are people of color who are also who have been conditioned to believe like that is the right way, right? Yeah. And like that's what I have to do. So when I talk about myself, I say, um, you know, I explain to my clients oftentimes that when we meet, like. You know, I kind of say like, we're going to have a crunchy experience. <laughs> like, they're like, crunchy, well, what does that mean? This is going to feel different than experiences you have a lot of times with other consultants. And when you, whenever you have a moment where you think to yourself, wow, I wouldn't have done that. Is that professional? I'm not sure about this. I want you to put a pin in that moment and think about why, right? And understand that like, I'm not going to code switch for you for us to have conversations. As someone who's had to do a lot of code switching throughout my life, which actually is really traumatic cumulatively, yeah. um, I recognize that like that is a, it is a full-time job to have to be yourself, but then also have to transform and be like this alter ego in yeah. a space where you get your money, right? Where you, where you make your livelihood. And what I say is that when I was in the nonprofit sector, and I was really young and fresh out of college and grad school, and I was trying really hard, you know, I wanted to make sure that I was the comfortable Black woman. Like, I didn't want people to feel like you are the angry Black woman. Actually, I got coached so many times by so many different mentors to say, make sure you're like careful about how you look and you don't raise your voice and you do these things, one, two, three, four, five, right? So that I could actually, in all actuality, become more white-like right? Less like who I am authentically and culturally, but more like what white dominant culture says a true professional is. And so now that I'm in a position of power and influence and that I run a consulting firm, I don't code switch. And I don't do it on purpose because I think it is super important for representation, right? Like if, if another young black woman or another young person of color never sees anyone who sounds like them, looks like them, they too will grow up believing that I have to change myself in order to be successful. And so that is a message that I take in my daily walk that I say, like, I want you to, you know, like you hired me to tell you a lot of information that already probably is here in your staff, right? Like if you could listen to your staff, 
they probably would tell you a lot of the same things that I, as the consultant who you're paying to come in, is going to tell you. But for some reason, you devalue their voice. Their voice and their lived experience and their time here as an employee is not expert enough experience for you to actually listen to them when it comes to designing solutions. And so you are going to pay an outsider like me to come into your organization. And really, I think my role is to amplify the voice of the staff, to amplify mm -hmm. the voice of the community members who were there and who know. And so your point is really well taken. I think oftentimes nonprofits, especially service-based nonprofits and communities, urban areas, cities are very often, um, at least from the middle management down, representative of the communities that they're trying to serve. And then when we look from kind of middle management up, it becomes lighter and lighter and wider and wider. And I think that that is an inherent problem in the nonprofit sector that we need to begin having a conversation about. Why can we, why is there a ceiling for us? And why aren't our voices um, and our experience trusted mm -hmm. in a way that says not only can we help to design solutions, but we deserve to be in leadership at this nonprofit. And mm -hmm. so a lot of that is around like the conversations around how do we shift um, um, our, our, our tendencies to window dress issues. We want to do DEI, but we don't really, really trust communities. We want community voice, but what we're really asking for is feedback, not leadership. We want to come up with a plan and then say, hey, what do you guys think about this? Um, we want the community members to work here, but then when they get here, we tell them you're not professional enough, so we actually have to change you and polish you up so that you can go out and represent our nonprofit. And so our mixed messages are very loudly heard by the staff and often in, in direct opposition to the values that we say we have as a sector and then as individual organizations, right? So if you ask an organization, what are your values? And then you ask the staff, well, what's the culture here? Many times I find that the culture at the organization is in kind of direct opposition to what the leadership will say are the values of the organization. And so we, we need alignment. We need a bridge between who you say you are and who you wanna be and who you actually are. And like, how do we bring those things closer together? I love that you say that about culture. Um, you know, I have a, a client who says, you know, culture eats policy for breakfast. In organizations, like your unspoken culture is really what's going to be enforced, not your policy, right? So um, absolutely, absolutely. And have you heard about this thing called the glass cliff? Because that's part of it. I have it. Tell me about it. So I just heard about this on LinkedIn, um, and this person who was talking about it named Monique Jones. She was saying how there's this thing called the glass escalator in nonprofits where. Mm -hmm. white men who are in a female dominated industry will just rise to the top within a couple of years because people assume that they are the leader. They look like what we think of as a leader. And the glass cliff is when an organization is in trouble and a black woman has come in to fix it, brought in to fix okay. it, and then she fixes it. And then they're like, great, we're done with you, bye. You fix the problem. Or yeah. there's still plenty of problems here. It's all your fault, even though it wasn't her fault at all. Right. That's what the glass right. cliff is. Yeah, we often talk about as uh, Black women organizations that, you know, I will be, every leadership position that I had in an organization um, when I was working in direct service was a cleanup job, yeah. was a job where I was specifically hired to help clean up someone else's um, inability to do the job properly, mm -hmm. right? Um, and that is a really hard and a thankless job. 
And oftentimes when you're done, there's either two things, either one, the problem was so big that you were set up for failure. And like, it really is more than what one person should be trying to address, right? Or like the organization of culture is so horrible that you have only, you know, your influence, your sphere of influence of what you can actually change is limited based on like all, you know, compared to all the things that need to be done or you clean it up. And then they say, great, thanks. We're going to move you to this next department. And now we want you to do more and clean that one too. And so we often find ourselves in these positions where we do a lot of cleanup work, but still never enough where we can then be promoted to the C-suite or the leadership job, even though our talent and our commitment was used in moments of crisis to bail the agency out. And that happens over and over and over again. And it's completely like demoralizing. And, and it is another reason why turnover is so high in the nonprofit sector, because it, it, it gets to a point where you're like, what else do I have to do? You are in a constant state of trying to prove yourself. As a woman um, in the nonprofit sector, you are, as a woman in any sector, constantly trying to prove that you have what it takes to lead. And I don't think that that is different in the nonprofit sector at all. I agree. And that's why I call this the Asking for More podcast, because I really want to help women ask for more for themselves, for their communities, and from a larger structure that we exist in. And if people are just unconsciously replicating this structure, they should know that. And if they know that, they can start to name it and they can start to do better if they want to, right? But sometimes, you know, we know it and it's working for us, the people at the top, so we do nothing, you know? And so the system works as it's designed to, you know? So, I mean, part of me listening to you just thinks, gosh, what if we just burn it all down? That sounds faster <laughs> than trying to fix this broken system. You know, I say system. that all the time. I'm always like, burn it down, burn it down. Yes. Um, we need to start. The whole entire system needs to be revamped and start, start restarted. Um, and let's be real, whether it's from philanthropy and, and it's some nonprofit work, um, oftentimes like, you know, it, it's the nonprofit sector is not a poor sector. There is tons of money, whether it's from wealthy donors or government, that be are being poured into issues um, and and trying to change indicators in communities across the country. And there is a reason why nothing's changing. In fact, in some places, it's getting worse. And and so, is it a money? Is it a problem of money and resources? Is it um, how our system is actually structured and set up? I always cringe when I hear a nonprofit, you know, talk about their mission and then talk about how many more people they serve the following year or the fact that their their aim is to just grow and to like get more contracts and serve more people. And I always wonder where is breaking the cycle on your priority list? I understand like you have this whole development arm and you're really focused on acquiring more and, 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 and enriching yourselves as an, as an institution, as an organization, we hear this word sustainability and fundraising and, and you wanna be sustainable, um, but to what end? Because exactly. is your role really to provide and to put a bandaid or is your mission really like, your job really to put yourself out of business, to be working to reduce the number of hungry people, to reduce the number of whatever the issue is that your nonprofit is founded and kind of mission driven to deal with, right? And so are you helping to, to decrease the problem or are you just finding comfort in knowing that you're gonna to continue to get funding 
for an ever-growing issue, right? And like, have you already checked out and said, we're not gonna actually help fix this. So we're just gonna get as many band-aids as we can so that we can continue to keep ourselves in business. And so I think it's really a value proposition for a nonprofit to say, what kind of nonprofit do I wanna be? And so, yeah, on a whole, burn the whole thing down. But there are really good nonprofits out there that are changing lives and trying to do good work. And then I think, you know, the idealist in me, I'm always in this battle with like, well, what's realistic, right? Like, what's my role? Should I even continue to do this work? And, and there is meaning in this work. And even if it's done on a institutional and an organizational level, in a community, that can make a huge difference. If a nonprofit in a community that is like the leading institution could get their stuff together in a way that really honored the people in that community and, and work to change and to positively impact root causes, then guess what? It's, it's worth having it around, right? And so some of it is as a sector, I think we need um, standards and values and like a, 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 an approach to how we do the work. And so that's what I try to bring to the table. Um, but I will say, I don't work with every client. And that's one of the things I think I've grown into and learned now being almost 10 years in is that not every organization is aligned with my values, right? And like, I have really strong values around justice and integrity um, and equity and liberation. And some nonprofits will say that, that those are their values too. Most people, when you say that, nod and shake their head. And then when you say, well, how is that present in your policies, practices, and the behavior of your staff, there's a huge disconnect. Mm -hmm. And so um, what my commitment is, is that I work with nonprofits who really wanna do the work, who really want to take the time to examine themselves, build stronger cultures, build, you know, uh, better cultures, build stronger teams, and to positively impact the indicators that are harming people in the communities that they serve. And so that's what feeds me and brings me um, great joy. And I find that for the people who work in nonprofits, that's what they want. They're tired of toxic stuff. They're tired of the cancer. They're tired of the mess. Most people who work in nonprofits are there because they want to help people and they want to do good work. And I think there are more of us than the others. The, the problem is when power and hierarchy gets mixed into that. And so some of that is like having executives and nonprofits who are trying this new approach, this real inclusive approach to leadership and decision-making and finding solutions for communities. And then hopefully them talking to their colleagues and their, you know, other EDs, other presidents, other CEOs and saying, you know what, there is a way to clean it up. There is a way to address your culture. There is a way to have a conversation with your staff and what I say is the art and science of behavior change. There's so much um, into what goes into changing a toxic culture. Um, and oftentimes, you know, I always say the tail follows the head. It starts at the top. There's not gonna be an executive that's moving in this direction and the staff are going in the opposite direction. Like the tail, even if it's a squiggly line behind the head, the tail follows the head. And so it's really important for leaders to lead. And if a leader um, has, the, 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 the support that they need, um, I believe that they can be a part of leading a transformational culture change in their organization. And when you see that and you see that it works and now you are competitive and your people are looking to grant, they're not having trouble finding grants. People are coming to you because they can see the difference in the way that you're applying your work because there's results. Um, and then other, hopefully that spreads like wildfire and you talk to your colleagues and they say, how'd you do it? We want to do it too. So that is my hope. My hope is that we are not an industry, a sector that is beyond repair. 
um, at least not completely beyond repair. But mm -hmm. I do think um, that as a structure, as an institution, as a body of work, we need to have, start having some real heart-to-hearts and some serious conversations about the fact that oftentimes we are doing more harm than good or perpetuating the cycles that we desire to break. Yes, yes, yes. I agree with everything that you said. And um, I'm gonna add one more thing. Um, people don't yet know about, you know, what does decolonize mean? You know, what you're asking for people to do is basically decolonize their thinking, decolonize their organizations, yep. because that kind of rapacious, bigger, bigger, bigger is, you know, it's not only like white supremacy, right? But it's also how cancer grows, right? It's also how, yep. um, you know, people think of, you know, success in the dominant culture, in white dominant culture. So um, I really love that you brought that up. Um, and if people want to learn more about how to disconnect from that and do less harm in the organization, Definitely check out dismantlingracism.org, Okun's whole PDF about, you know, anti-racism inside organizations, like, you know, how to have antidotes to daily behaviors and how you normally do things is a really good tool. Um, I really appreciate you sharing that, um, Denisha, because, uh, you know, but before we started talking, you and, I mean, recording, you and I were talking about how accountability is often used as a punishment. Can you say more about that? Absolutely. So in part of my work of what I do is um, uh, organizational development through team building and capacity development around conflict resolution. What I mm -hmm. find oftentimes when I go into organizations and have conversations with folks is that um, the problem isn't actually the work. <laughs> it's, a, it's things related to the culture and boundaries and expectations of the staff and how we work with each other. What are our rules of engagement? who gets to show up and who gets to cancel a meeting. It's like all these internal things that actually become barriers to people being able to do their work and, and move the needle. And so um, we have conversations and oftentimes what ends up happening is that we'll say, so let's do an org assessment. Let's talk about what's going on here. And the people will often look out and point out and it's this person or this leader or they need training or the supervisor stuff. And it's, you know, all these things. And so when you say, well, what do you need? What kind of training would you need? Like, well, I don't really need training. I think the supervisors need training. And there's a, like a misplacing of blame. There's a lot of pointing of the fingers. And so what I help people to understand is that like, even if everything you're saying is true, at some point, you have to think about like having a reflective moment and thinking about yourself and how you show up and whether you are contributing or not contributing to the toxic culture. And so for example, what's not, so people say, well, I don't really get into the mess. Well, have you ever tried to have a conversation and like bring it up in a way that your team could, you know, find some alignment or find some agreement or say, we wanna put something in the parking lot about our org culture and about our boundaries and about expectations and how we talk to each other. Are you helping to advance the conversation? Or are you saying, you know what, I'm just close to my job, get my check, and like, I don't want to be involved, right? Because that's a choice to not participate in the development of the organization, to not say anything. Um, and so I tell people, it's really important to think about like accountability. And when we say accountability, people often say, yeah, I can be accountable. When I do something wrong, I'm accountable. Or we want to make our staff, people, um, talk about hiring me, they often will say, we want to make our staff accountable. We want our staff to have more accountability. And what I try to help people understand is 
Accountability is something that comes from a person, comes from within, right? Accountability requires someone to say, I did something. I was even made aware that I did something or someone's acting funny with me. So I think I did something. And I want to understand what I did. I want to apologize or atone for what I did. And then I want to think about how we do things differently going forward so that we both can repair or heal from this situation, right? So there is, um, so though there's like steps to conflict resolution, steps to moving forward and to not allowing something to fester and become a problem. But you can't force that. If you force it, it's punishment. If you force it, it's just like giving someone consequences. I'm just going to write you up or I'm going to tell and, or I'm going to request a meeting and you may do all those things and something may happen. There may be some consequence, but that's not accountability. Accountability does not occur until a person in themselves accepts that I could have done something differently. Whether or not I intended for it to happen this way or I intended for someone to get hurt, whether or not I agree that this is what happened, what I do wanna do is acknowledge that I'm being told or informed in some either verbal or body language way that things are not okay. I want you to know I see that and I am willing to do something to get us past that. That is what true accountability is. And so many people are uncomfortable with that. They will avoid colleagues who they know of, like stop speaking to me for some reason, I'm just gonna avoid them. Or they'll talk to other people about it. Or they'll say, well, I didn't mean to. Or they'll say, well, I said sorry and I don't know how, what else I have to do. And what I try to help people understand is like, you're taking pieces, pieces of the conflict resolution um, of the steps and you're doing one piece here or one piece there and then expecting to get the end result of resolution or restoration. You cannot get to healing and restoration unless there's been a full um, uh, acknowledgement. So like there's a recognition that something happened. There is um, an apology or an offering of a way of trying to understand what can we do to make this better. There is an agreement about ways to move forward. And then there's some follow-up conversation to ensure that you maintain a connection and that this thing doesn't become a permanent roadblock to you all being able to work together. So we build those skills and like, really you can't force accountability. And I think that is one of the major misconceptions is like, we can force other people to be accountable. No, you can't. You really can, you can do punishment, you can have retribution, retaliation, but for teams to really work well together and for teams to be able to go through conflict is normal. We also wanna normalize that. I think some of the, the misconception is that we shouldn't have conflict. Conflict is normal and it's healthy. In fact, groupthink has been um, responsible for some of the world's worst atrocities. And so conflict and being able to think differently and, and have an exchange of ideas is so critically important to ensuring that the most brilliant idea pops bubbles up to the surface. And so we want people to not run from conflict, but we want them to deal with it in a healthy way that isn't toxic or harm, harmful to their colleagues. And so, yeah, accountability has to come from within. It is hard and it takes a lot of practice. We are defensive beings by nature. Um, and so a lot of my work is helping people to lower their defenses and to be okay with being human, to be okay with not being perfect, to normalize the fact that you're gonna make a mistake and you may step on someone's toes and you may do something wrong, but there is a way to recover from that. And there's a way to restore um, connection and relationships so that it doesn't negatively impact your work. 
I really appreciate you saying that, Tanisha, because what you're doing is you're actually also calling out those pieces, again, from dismantlingracism.org with white supremacy culture, which is perfectionism, only one white, right way to do things, as well as, you know, punishment culture, right? Um, instead of uh, asking people to come back in relation to people. And on top of that, fear of open conflict and a total, you know, um, what's the other one? Oh yeah, right to comfort, right? So a lot of people feel like they have the right to comfort, which means they don't have to actually address an issue that they caused or they were a part of. And the fear of open conflict prevents them from actually facing that colleague and saying, I'm sorry. And, right. you know, taking, you know, ownership and accountability for what they did. Um, and I'm no better than anyone else. I just want to say that I very much grew up in this, just like everyone in this culture did, and I'm working on it. Um, but I, I really like how you had that nuanced, you know, definition of accountability, because there does have to be apology. There does have to be acknowledgement before you can have relational repair. And if one of those isn't there, you're not going to you're not going to get anywhere. Right. And I think people get really comfortable with the acknowledgement part. So people will say to me, well, I said I was sorry. It's like that's step one. There's several other steps to get to healing and restoration, right? And like to a point where this is not going to be a wound that continues to stay open or get triggered down the road when something else happens. So how do we actually heal the wound um, so that it doesn't become a domino effect where like next time, this person is not just mad about what happened that time, but they're mad about what happened this time too, because you actually never made the arc from getting past the, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, don't solve everything. You know, like, you know, if I walk through the door and I step on your toe by accident, yeah, you know, I'm sorry, might solve that. Um, if I uh, display microaggressions to you, or if I lie to you or betray you, or if I step on your toe and it, gets broken and now you have to take time off of work and like go to physical therapy because you have like I'm sorry it's not enough that's not that's you know there's a scale of like when I'm sorry should end something and the problem is is that most people think that's most of the time and it's not most of the time in order for the person who feels aggrieved to move on they need more than just I'm sorry so that's the acknowledgement piece. And acknowledgement is usually the easiest piece. We can get people to say, I'm sorry. But how many times has someone said you're sorry and you're like, no, you're not. Like you're literally just saying you're sorry because you're saying the words, but you are not truly sorry. What that person is trying to say is, I hear your acknowledgement, but I don't feel your accountability. That's the missing piece, right? It's when acknowledgement gets connected to accountability. And when someone sees accountability, then you can start to to heal and then restore, right? Like, so there are, there, it's a continuum. And oftentimes we just like, we want to get to the, I'm sorry. Some people have trouble getting to step one. I'm sorry. No one ever, I don't want to say sorry. I don't want to say sorry. And then you work with them and they're able to get to the, I'm sorry. But that doesn't really translate to behavior change. That doesn't translate to next time before something happens, I'm going to critically think about this and use what I learned in this experience to do something different. Or I'm going to sit with you and we're going to set up our professional boundaries and I want to get to know you and know what makes you tick and you're going to know what makes me tick and we're going to try not to like step on each other in that way because like we're human and we're different and it's okay we both get to be who we are but let's have that conversation so we know how to better work with each other so that needs to be normalized in the workplace those are the conversations where we always feel like we don't have time for and we do meeting after meeting after meeting but we don't spend time getting to really connect with people so that when things do happen when conflict does arise 
that you can depersonalize it and know you're not out to get me because actually we have these conversations on a regular basis. And like right now, I might be a little pissed off at you, but I know you're a good person. And I know you're just trying to do the right thing. And we just disagree on this thing, but I'm not going to take this personal and it's not going to affect our work, right? Like how do you build relationships with your colleagues like that, Mm -hmm. that are healthy, that honor everyone's individual differences and and ability and, and ways that they show up that sets professional boundaries so that people get choice and understand like, I might do this and piss her off because I know she don't like that, but like I have a choice, right? And then, mm-hmm. you, then you can deal with the consequences of that. But like, I do think we need to spend some time, particularly around COVID, like so much turnover has happened in organizations and people have not been able to be in each other's presence for each other's energy. Like little things like someone holding the door for you when you're walking into your building and they see you with bags and they hold the door. That helps to create connection and bond. Bumping into someone and taking their photocopy out the machine by accident and having to go give them and say, oh, I printed my stuff and I realized I had you. Oh, by the way, how's your kid doing? Like, we don't have those opportunities right now. And so I do think that conflict becomes even more amplified because people see the conflict, they don't see the person. Mm -hmm. And I think in my work, what I'm hoping that we can do is like, we'll do real people-centered work. We cannot continue to be a sector that says we care so much about communities. We invest all of our time and our effort into honoring communities, into strengthening communities, and then we treat our staff like shit. Like, it just does not, it is not aligned. Your staff, if they are traumatized and not well and working through toxic culture, are never going to be able to show up for the community in a way that is aligned with your organizational values. Your organizational values cannot exist just outside your organization. They have to exist within your organization. And so there's a real misalignment between what an organization looks like externally and how they show up in a community and then how folks treat each other internally when they have to work together. And I believe that until we start dealing with some of those root causes um, around culture and organizational expectations, and really drawing clear lines that are connected to values and how we show up and treat each other, that we will continue to have organizations that are not actually changing the landscape out there for so many people who live in communities where they are being marginalized and excluded. That's right, that's right, amen. Like, yes, thank you so, so much, um, Denisha. Like, you're reminding me of something that Sean Good said. He's the director of Challenge 180 in Seattle. And he said, if you're not treating your employees right, if you're not paying them enough, your nonprofit is hurting the world and you should not exist. Absolutely. I cannot tell you, I used to be the director of a homeless shelter and I did a lot of work in homeless services um, in New York City. And I can't tell you how many of my staff members um, were people who, if they missed a check or two, could end up in a homeless shelter. And by chance to be in the same shelter they used to work in because yeah. Yeah. of how little we pay people, um, because of the lack of time off that we give people, because we um, you know, use real punitive measures and, and have people working in, in environments where they are in fear of losing their job, of of not performing, of not changing and like having these outcomes in communities where it's really tough to achieve those outcomes. 
Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes, nonprofits are run like businesses, and I get it. You, you know, I am the chair of the board of a nonprofit, so I completely understand um, conversations related to funding, sustainability, ensuring that we are being fiscally responsible and that we have what we need to do the work that we want to do. I get that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it doesn't have to be an either or, it has to be an and, and, right? Like, absolutely. Yes, and, and. And, well, I mean, you right? still should not treat your staff terribly. Right. And, your and right. Alone. It's like, it's like good like, intentions are not enough. Just like anytime right. there's harm, right. good intentions are not enough. So, I mean, the reason, honestly, one of the reasons that we get paid so little is because, you know, this is about sexism, right? This is about how most of us in the sector are women. Most of us have gotten from a very young age trained to do things for free for everyone, cooking, cleaning, watching your children, you know, so we come to the nonprofit sector and we devalue ourselves, right? So that's why I love helping women ask for more. And I love that you're also naming these traumas that happen in organizations aside from being underpaid, because that's really important too. Like even if you're getting paid a hundred thousand a year, you're getting microaggressions every day. You don't want to be there. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, so absolutely. we're out of time. We're out of time, unfortunately, but I w- I feel like we could talk for another three hours and I love that. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, we'll get to like asking for more. Like there's a real gap in, um, again, in values and, and, and what is actually happening. Yeah. And I just, I am a strong believer um, that our communities don't have time to wait for us to get it together. Like we are in unprecedented times. Um, right now in our country Um, and uh, if we are doing this work at the sector we need to do it with integrity Um, and we should be trying to to break cycles and not perpetuate so many of the things that we know are keeping communities you know in the places that they are and so like stop all the isms the racism the sexism the misogyny the xenophobia like all of it all of it the homophobia like the isms and obias are killing our sector. Um, and if we are truly about justice, if we are truly about equity and people, we need to do some housekeeping. And they should hire you to help them do that. And I love that. Indeed. And thank you <laughs> so much. Indeed, I am doing executive coaching, team professional development, um, and team building and conflict resolution. And so if you and your team are ready, um, to embark on the journey and the experience of building a better culture and a strong team, um, come find me. I'd love to talk to you. Yes, yes, please reach out to Denisha. How do they find you? What's your what's your website? What's your social media? So, yep, you can find me. Uh, you can email me at hello at Denisha, D-E-N-E-I-S-H-A dot com. As I mentioned, my company is undergoing rebranding and we have just rebranded ourselves to four impact consulting and you can find us at four that's the number four impactconsulting.com. i love that and you know this is the conversation is not over we're going to have you speak at the conference about healing um, from the trauma of the nonprofit sector you know because of everything we just talked about and i'm really excited we really set up this problem so beautifully and when they come to the conference they're going to Here's some solutions. <laughs> yes, yes, and ways to do something, ways to take it back and do something that could be meaningful. So yeah, come come learn. Come learn. Um, the art and science, the art and science of how to um, get some behavior changes in our profit. I love it. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It has been wonderful to be with you. 
that's a wrap. Thank you so much for listening today. If you like today's show, please share it with another woman in your life. Go on iTunes and Apple Podcasts and leave a good review. It always helps people find us. And if you'd like to learn more about asking for more, I have uh, a mastermind called Asking for More. If you go to askingformore.com and I'd love to uh, invite you to join us. So feel free to go check that out and see you next time. The Asking for More podcast was produced by Javelin Consort of Contessa Digital, and the intro and outro music is Brastronaut Bounce.